0: Ladies and the creator of the popular 605 Podcast, and the president of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, your co-host, the great Brian Last.
2: Hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am the great Brian Last, and I am very pleased to once again welcome the Tennessee stud himself, the man behind the Studcast, Ron Fuller. Ron, here we go again, another week we've left the snake pit now safely i consider.
1: yes yes uh, we certainly have uh four episodes on it uh more than i thought that would occur but there was such a tremendous amount of of interest and excitement about it that i just really wanted to cover it well and i think we did a good job i've been getting a lot of tremendous comments about it and how people enjoyed it but it's time to move on and uh we're we're going to go back to kind of where we were when we started into the snake pit Uh, we're still in 1971. We are in the the time period from basically January up to about the first of May. I've kind of looked back at the opponents that I wrestled during that time and what was happening, what type of matches I was in. and, And I really found out for myself after reviewing this great list of matches and opponents and ones wins and losses. I mean, they cover pretty much everything in this, in this thing that uh, someone was nice enough to send me about my career. And it's pretty amazing. The wrestlers that I end up wrestling in this four or five month period. I'm now about 10 months in as a professional started in June of 70. Now we're up to about May of 71. And uh, maybe we start, Brian, I just let me talk about basically at the beginning here about the tremendous young talent in Florida at the time. And uh, I'm talking about really young guys. We're, they're all probably within their first year, maybe two. Some of them might have been in two years at this point. Uh, but most of these guys are within their first year. They're rookies like I am. And. This is just a phenomenal list of young guys. Uh, Let's just start with Mike Graham, Uh, the second generation, uh, obviously son of Eddie and uh, a super talent. Mike's got great body and, uh, and, and a lot of amateur background. He's just really, really, really well set to do well as a professional, and he's going to have a pretty darn decent career. Uh, another guy that's there that's about the same time frame and about the same age as Mike is Dick Slater. Dick Slater is very young, but gosh, he has such talent and I I watch him and I, and I'm I'm kind of amazed at how good he is in his first year. Uh really an extremely talented guy. Uh, Bob Roop, uh he's maybe been 2 years in the profession at this point. Uh he's been highly talked about obviously in the snake pit but he's actually out there doing a tremendous job in the ring as a professional and uh he's really a great talent for his age uh jackie and roy lee welch that's lester's sons now that's my grandfather's brother's sons these are second generation wrestlers. they have traveled a little bit they started out in georgia Uh, they are about the same age that i am Uh, Jackie's a little older than I am. Roy Lee is a year younger than I am, but they're both kind of rookies. Haven't been in it very long, but they have excellent talent. Uh, Lester trained them a lot and he spent a lot of time. Lester had a very unique style about him and his boys kind of, when you watch them wrestle, I see Lester in them. And they are they're good. They're really good. They wrestle a lot as a team, but they can wrestle single matches as well. You've got Ken Lusk that we've talked a little bit al- already about, Ken Mantel, uh tremendous talent, great amateur background, uh just a fabulous, going to be a big star as as time goes by here, and going to become a booker. He's he's a he's a sharp individual, a sharp young guy. Bob Orton Jr. You got another second generation guy here. He's just starting as well. Uh, he's just like his dad. I, I wrestled his dad quite a bit, Bob Orton Sr. And Bob Orton Jr. is like kind of like watching his dad when he's in the ring. Uh, and it's pretty amazing. You got these second generation wrestlers that that emulate their fathers. And I, I don't I don't know that, that that takes place in many sports. But you can really see it in professional wrestling when when you're a second generation wrestler you're going to end up doing things like your dad did in a lot of ways, and that that that's strange to me that it happens, but it does happen uh you got another great young wrestler there, Les Thatcher uh, Les Thatcher's probably been in maybe for three years uh he's coming out of Canada uh out of the maritimes up there, and uh he's got uh, Got great talent. He's going to be a, a pretty decent star around the country as time goes on here, too. Uh, becomes a great personal friend of mine as well. Mike Boyette, hippie Mike Boyette, I call him, uh, comes, from the, comes into Florida out of the Gulf Coast area. That's from Lee Fields and them along the Gulf Coast, where I'm going to set up with Southeastern Wrestling years down the road. The Fields brothers are there, and Mike Boyette is a young guy who becomes a star for them. They recommend him, I believe, to Eddie, and Eddie brings him in to Florida to have a look at him. Uh, Eddie likes these young guys. He wants these young boys on his card. I think he appreciates their enthusiasm in the ring and how hard they work and how how digging they are every night. They're digging out there to be better every night. Uh, Another guy there is named Joe Flaherty. Uh, doesn't have a long career, doesn't become a big star. He's a pretty decent talent as a young guy, and they use him quite a bit. But uh, his career is going to be short-term as compared to a lot of these others. You got one more here, Dennis McCord, who is at this point about 320 pounds. He has black hair. He has hair all over his body. He does not at all resemble who he's going to become uh, the uh, the big name under and that's Austin Idol. Dennis McCord's going to become Austin Idol. He's going to be a big star down the road. But uh, as his young guy, he's he's a lifter, a power lifter that can't get off those weights, and he's he's almost too big, and he's sharp guy. So he realizes within the next three or four years that his body style is, I don't think, going to make him a star. And he makes the transformation of his body that's just remarkable to me. I don't see him after Australia in 83, in 73, I'm sorry. After my Australia trip in 73, I don't see Austin for about a year. And the next time I see him... He's not Dennis McCord. He's Austin Idol. I don't even recognize him. I sit next to him dressing in the dressing room, and I don't know who he is. So there's a transformation there that's just amazing. And so you've got this. This is a nucleus of tremendous young wrestlers right here. They're all going to go in different directions. Some are going to become bookers. So uh, Most of them are going to become great workers. Uh, they're going to become main eventers. I mean, they're going to make a name for themselves in the sport, and it's pretty hard to put together a type of group like this. So I'm pretty amazed at, at what Eddie's done here and how many young guys he has brought into this territory and gave them an opportunity to work with the great,
2: great talent that's there. You have a lot of young guys. You also have a few guys who are from Tampa, of course. Mike McCord, Dennis McCord, Austin Idol's from Tampa. Mike Graham is from Tampa. Because of your father's relationship with Eddie, you and your brother got to know Mike years before you got into the business, so you were friends with him. Mike went to school with Dick Slater. Did you ever meet Dick Slater before he was in the business? I didn't, but Rob did,
1: and th- there's a picture somewhere, and it's an amazing picture to me. Actually, it's a picture of Mike Graham and Rob and, and Dennis McCord, and they are, they are probably, I'm going to guess they're 16 years old maybe 17 years old. Uh, Rob is extremely thin. Uh, Mike's already starting to look like a wrestler. Uh, Dennis McCord looks like a weightlifter. I mean, he's really bulky. Uh, so it's a strange picture to see those guys. Dick Slater, I'm going to meet in 71 this same year that we're talking about and the time frame we're talking about now and Dick is going to be a remarkable wrestler just from the very get-go. In fact, when I saw Dick wrestle his very first match, he wrestled in West Palm Beach. Uh, This is within the same year, sometime in 71, and he had been training for a while. Uh, I knew him. We were friends, uh, but I'd never seen him wrestle. Uh, It was his very first match in West Palm Beach on a Monday night, And I watched him go to the ring. I never saw anything like this before or since he started down to the ring. And the very first person that booed him, he came as a heel out the heels entranceway. So I assume everybody knew he was going to be a heel. And the very first person that booed him, he stopped and he made a point of trying to look, find him. Who was that that booed me? And and uh, then he he started another couple of steps, and somebody else booed him. He stopped, and this took him. It must it took him five minutes to get to the ring. Now he went first. There's nobody in the ring, and so he, now he's taking this long walk to the ring. He's got by the time he gets to the ring, he's got everybody's attention. They're all looking at him now, and half the crowd now is booing him because he's made it obvious that he don't want to be booed so he gets up on the apron of the ring and he looks around at the crowd uh, gives him a real smirky little horrible grin on his face and then he goes to jump the top rope he catches his toe on the top rope and takes a bump on his face in the middle of the ring and the pop he gets a pop By just going to the ring and getting in the ring, he gets the crowd to pop right there. And I watch that, and I go, that guy's going to be a star. I mean, it was just, to me, a remarkable entrance for somebody's first match. Because guys don't go to the ring with that type of confidence most of the time in their first match. They don't know what to do. They're concerned about it. They're nervous. It's obvious. Uh, None of that happened when I watched Dick Slater. Dick Slater knew what he wanted to do. He had them all up. And when he took that bump on his face, I mean, he got the pop. And I was just, I was very impressed. and, And Dick goes on to be one of the great workers of all time.
2: Had you already at that point when he started heard stories about his toughness?
1: No, I did not know that. And I don't know that a lot of people knew that at that point. Uh, His toughness is going to come into play in this first year. And it's not going to be that far off from where we're talking about uh, with his first match here. Within probably, I'd say, his first uh, 20 matches, he's going to have an altercation. And uh, people are going to know that Dick Slater is a a handful. And uh, that's what he's going to remain his entire career. Yeah, uh, and his reputation will precede him the older he gets, and he won't have a lot of problems from guys because uh, he got a great right hand.
2: That's all you need. <laughs> That's yeah. all you need. Yeah. But here, uh, yeah. here, here you are. You're only 10 months into your career. You're in Florida, and you're really surrounded by a top-notch crew of young wrestlers.
1: Yes. Yes, great young wrestlers. and uh, and And I'm beginning to, you know, I'm beginning to actually, I'm being pushed uh, for for whatever reason, you know, and I don't know that it has to do with my dad. Uh, I would hate to think that's the case, but I have a background that nobody has. None of these young guys have. I have that University of Miami basketball uh, history behind me, and and Gordon really jumps on it. Gordon really loves that fact that I'm a legitimate uh, really pretty decent athlete and not just in one sport so gordon's pushing me a lot uh built around my basketball background and the fact that it's a it's a florida team that i played for it all works in well and to help me become a star it kind of stands me out a little bit from all these other young wrestlers uh so Within this time period, by April, by March and April, I start to work main events in the small towns. Uh, They they send me to Fort Myers on Tuesdays rather than Tampa. They send me to O'Galley on Wednesday rather than Miami sometimes. They send me to smaller towns, but I'm in a main event in those small towns. And now that puts me usually working with a darn good worker. And uh, and an old pro that knows how to lead me, and he knows how to teach me, and and then then they take it up another a notch. They start to use me in some angles, and they return matches, and and and, uh, and then they go to the real extreme with me. They start putting me in these forty-five minute time limits and one-hour draws, and within my first year in the ring, now that's very tough on a on a green guy on a rookie that really doesn't know his way around not many guys are capable of doing that hour and keeping the audience into it for that hour and what it actually does for me is it makes me a better worker faster because I got to I'm spending a lot of time in the ring and that's what it takes to become a great worker you got to do it every night and then at the same time you need to have these long matches especially every once in a while but they're really hammering me with them they they're making me go broadway they don't want to beat me in these towns so they're letting me go 45 minutes and hour time limits with uh with the likes of uh, of Rene Goulet and uh with uh, Ronnie Garvin and with some of these guys that that have some background behind them, and that are really, really great workers. And it gives me the opportunity to
2: to get good fast. Well, I guess that raises a question. I mean, here you are, you're young in your career, so you could look at it from that angle. But also later on, you would be a booker, you'd be a promoter, you would own your own territory. In your estimation, how long does it take to become a star. And I know that's a weird question and it's hard to really narrow in on an answer, but again, you have unique experience here, Ron, how long does it take to become a star? Well, you know, when I got, when I first started wrestling, I asked that
1: question from a lot of the old timers, you know, I'd say, how long is it going to take me to get to be good? You know, and, and that, 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 that's a heck of a question there, and and everybody is different. Every talent in wrestling is a different talent, and some guys get it very fast, and some guys don't pick it up ever. So you don't really – so when guys – the answer I got from a lot of the old-timers was always five years. It was like you, five years. It's going to take you five years to work your way to being a top guy and to be a start able to uh to have great matches on a continual basis uh to be able to get over in a territory uh you so you know that was kind of what everybody told me you know and and now I'm ten months here i am I'm ten months in as a pro. And I'm already in these in the main events in small towns, I'm already in these angles in which I'm returning with the guy week after week. I'm going these forty-five minute and one hour time limits. Uh that's pretty much unheard of for a guy in his first year. And it benefits me greatly. I'd really get a big head start on a lot of these young guys that I've mentioned here because they're not getting that shot they're not getting that opportunity they're working with each other in these early matches and they're trying they don't have a leader and they're trying to have a good match uh with uh, somebody that really doesn't know how to lead them and the great thing about wrestling in the ring with the, with the old timer when you're young is that's where you learn. You learn from those guys so much about how to how to get the crowd and how, how to rest when you need to. Uh, uh, when you've got these hour draws and you've got these long matches, you have to learn how to save yourself for that end, for that last five, ten minutes in which you've got to just be really putting forth a lot of effort. So I guess the answer is probably somewhere around five years. And actually, I thought I was pretty much there in Florida in 73, 74. After my second and third year there, I felt like I was almost there. But when I leave and I go to Tennessee and I start my own company, I I find myself. Uh, it's like every wrestler has something that they do in the ring that identifies them from other wrestlers. And with me, it was, I started to shake my head in the ring and kind of do a little dance. I don't know where it came from. Started one night, crowd got into it. I liked it. I felt it. And I and it changed me. And between 1974 and 1976, I do become what i'm going to be the rest of my career and so it actually takes me if uh, let's say 76 by 76 it takes me the five years but uh i find another dimension in within my ability uh once i go to Tennessee and that makes all the difference in the world i would have drawn more money in florida i would have been a bigger star in florida had i got to that point but it happened to happen it just happened to that it took place in my first year once i went to tennessee
2: well you mentioned you were working with a great crew you talked about some of the other young guys but who were the guys you actually were in there working with well there's you know florida was
1: loaded i mean florida's always had tremendous talent but in the wintertime, you're in Florida, you've got guys that want to come down there and vacation. Uh, they, they're they up north. Uh, it used to happen uh, like uh, I would get uh, Ray Stevens would come and Nick Bockwinkle would come from, from up in, in Ganyas territory. And it's horribly cold up there. And they want to spend two months down there in Florida. Uh, the guys were coming there on a constant constant basis there was an influx of talent especially in the winter time and a lot of those guys were stars they had the ability to put to keep their spot in that territory they were working in and just say hey look i want a vacation i'd like to have a month off i'm going to florida and uh you can start booking me a month from now again and the promoters wanted to keep them they were great talent so you had a remarkable influx of guys now There are some new opponents that I work with from the start of 1971 in January uh, into the 1st of May, basically. One of them is the Great Malenko. Great Malenko has been a Florida standard for years. He and Eddie probably ran some of the longest running feuds in the history of Florida wrestling. Larry Simon is his name, the Great Malenko. He's a fabulous talent. He's just extremely talented. Uh, He's got great heat in Florida. Uh, Even though he's been there probably for years, I don't know how many years at this point, he still has heat. And uh, anytime you get to work with a guy like that, you are going to learn a whole lot. And uh, I did, I had several matches with Malenko during this time period. And I just really relished the opportunity to work with him. Another guy, that I worked with quite a bit uh, in this time frame was Johnny Walker. He was not yet Mr. Wrestling number 2. And there's a strange guy for you in a way. Now, Johnny Walker's been around for a long, long time, and he doesn't find his his little niche. He doesn't find his little thing that I just talked about finding in Tennessee. He doesn't find that thing that turns him into a huge talent until he puts that mask on and goes to Atlanta. And gosh almighty, he becomes a monster star in Atlanta. He becomes twice the talent and twice the star that he ever did in Florida, any territory work prior to working in Georgia. So I get an opportunity to work with Johnny and Johnny's a fabulous worker. Um, he just, and he's a go getter. He's, he's one of those guys that moves in the ring and he gets that movement going. And, uh, so I learned a lot from this guy, uh, I work with Hiro Matsuda, Uh, gosh, tremendous talent. And, you know, I'm shooting with that Matsuda in the gym, but it's a whole different ball game out there in the ring. And I I learned so much from Hiro. Hiro's timing is really, really good. He's one of the greatest Japanese workers probably of all time. Uh, I work with Hippie Boyette. He's a young guy. But, he, you know, I, I do have some matches with some of these young guys. I worked several matches with Boyette. Uh, I can see his skills. I can see he's going to be a star. And he's he's a, he's a good guy to work with. I get the opportunity to work with the medics. The Medics, one of the greatest tag teams of all time, and uh, the, it's it's winter time and coming into the springtime, and there's two great tag teams there now. You've got the Medics there, and you got Jack and Jim Dalton, so you've got you've got, t- and their styles are totally different. So you're you're just wrestling with. I got Hans Smith, who is big, huge. I mean, uh, pounding. He's he's a He's a guy that gets me ready to be able to work with Johnny Valentine. He's one of those guys that just beats you and pounds you into the mat. And uh, he builds my stamina. And, and a couple of years down the road, I'm going to work with one of the greatest workers of all time. I'm going to be married to him for months. Uh, Johnny Valentine and I are going to work these long programs and these tremendously long matches. And uh, it's going to be a great experience for me. Hans Schmidt is a, just a, just to get me ready for for Johnny Valentine, who's going to come later. Hans Mortier, another German guy, big guy, uh, not as big a name as Hans Schmidt, but um, pretty decent worker. Works a totally different style than Hans Schmidt. Uh, And uh, there's a little Mexican guy in the crew that has been around a long time. His name is Cisco Grimaldi. Cisco Grimaldi is short and small. Uh, They like to put him in the ring with me. I never could figure out why, but uh, Cisco taught me a lot of speed moves, and he taught me a couple of Mexican-style moves, and uh, one of them uh, I like to use with him on the finish, and he was a smaller guy, and I would... I would crisscross with him on the end, I would leapfrog him, and then he would run straight at me and I would grab him around his waist and I would shoot him in the air as high as I could. And he would push to get himself a real good push. And he would go sometimes to the ring lights. Sometimes I have seen his head uh, in the area where the actual lights are in the ring light. And when he came down, I would catch him in a bear hug and then I would belly-to-belly belly him in a suplex. Probably was a good-looking move. I mean, it helped to get me over, and Cisco really was, he was really great, and he treated me great, and he he worked his butt off, and he got me over as a young guy. He was one of these guys, like Walker did, uh, Malenko, uh, you know, working with the medics. Uh, you know, I'm just really in a good situation here. I'm a young guy who's being pushed. And that's pretty unusual. And I'm getting this opportunity to work with a vast array of talent.
2: You bring up the medics, of course, in Tennessee, they would be known as the interns and they would have a manager, Dr. Ken Ramey, who had been a referee and then became a manager. And from everything I've always heard was a heat machine. I heard he was tremendous. And unfortunately, there's almost no footage of Dr. Ken Ramey. There's a little bit at the end of his career working for Roy Shire in San Francisco, but there's certainly nothing of him from this period of time. Talk a little bit about the interns, the medics and Dr. Ken Ramey. Well, you know, the medics worked everywhere.
1: They worked all over the country. They were well, they were just a phenomenal tag team. Uh great gimmick and uh and I remember seeing Ken Ramey Ramey the medics were with my dad in Memphis in the in 59 and 60 and uh Ken Ramey was there during that time frame and you're right Ken Ramey was a heat machine he was phenomenal manager uh small and uh you know little scrawny neck and scrawny body uh he had all the things that it took to get real heat and and he just he had a couple of workers that were just phenomenal and they had their stuff together they were one of the greatest teams of all time and when i saw myself booked on cards with them it it did something to me it gave me it made me feel big time uh, because i'd watched these guys in 1960 when i was uh, in the 6th grade 12 years old and to be in the ring with them it's like wow i can't believe i'm actually working with these guys and they took great pains and uh, and a lot of time and effort with me to, to make me a better worker. Uh, lots of times you find out so much about what you did wrong immediately following your matches, and you sit down with somebody and say, what did I do? How did I do? I used to like to do that. Uh, a lot of young guys didn't do that. They, I never saw him go to these old timers after the match and, and say, how can I improve? What can I do better? I wanted to get that information, that, that feedback, and I wanted to get it instantly. I didn't want to wait. I wanted to get them right in. What did I do? How did I do? What can I do better? Uh, you, and the medics were a fabulous team. They had a lot of different names, the interns, the medics. They probably had other names that I'm not even aware of. I know they worked on the West Coast. Uh, They worked probably uh, they probably worked their way from Florida to the West Coast, and uh, became huge stars. Uh, Jack and Jim Dalton, same type of deal. Great workers, tremendous, tremendous in the ring, and uh, had a great style, especially uh, Jim. Uh, Jim Dalton. Jim Dalton's going to pair later on with Don Fargo. Uh, he's going to pair with a lot of great guys. He's going to be a, one of the great tag tag guys of all time. And he, he can do it with anybody. Uh, just happens to be at Jack and Jim at this point. And, uh, you know, I get the opportunity, these opportunities to work with these type of guys is just, it's, it's fabulous for me. It, it, I couldn't be in a better situation than what I am
2: there. You're in a good situation. You talked about a lot of the young wrestlers who were there. You talked about a lot of the guys you got to work with. I want to ask you about some of the guys you got to tag up with because you did do a lot of tag team wrestling. And before I get there, Ron, at this point in your career, 1971, 10 months in, are you more comfortable in a singles match or in a tag match? I'm beginning
1: to be more comfortable in a single match. I'm not working a lot of tag matches like I was with Rob in my first three months in Georgia. uh, I worked. Uh, very few single matches. Uh, here, I'm beginning to work a lot of single matches. I work with Malenko. He's a single match. Johnny Walker's a single match. Uh, Boy, it's a single match. Hans Schmitz and uh, Cisco Grimaldi, uh, uh, Paul Jones, uh, uh, Buddy Colt occasionally. I might get a, a, a shot with Buddy Colt. Uh, there's So I'm doing a lot of single matches. But I do have... These medic matches and the Jack and Jim Dalton matches, and they're giving me different partners, and that's helping me too. Uh, some of these partners are just astronomical talent. Uh, Jack Briscoe. I, I worked several tag matches with Jack Briscoe. He is to me the ultimate. I mean, you can't you can't get as far as legitimacy and and being tough and knowing how to wrestle he may be the greatest I ever got in the ring with so far as being just a technician a wrestling technician he's just fantastic uh, Jack and I are going to become very close friends Jack takes a liking to me and uh and I like Jack too and Jack and Jack's going to teach me a lot in my four years there in Florida before I move on and when I do move on He's going to come through and wrestle me. He's going to be world champion. And I'm going to have some matches with Jack Briscoe that I'm very proud of to this day. Uh Jack is a tremendous talent. Uh, I'm going to wrestle with Dick Steinborn. Dick Steinborn is phenomenal. He is one of the best talents in the world, uh, and he has the ability that that's most unusual. He can go out there and emulate anybody he wants to. I have seen him in Atlanta uh before I started my career. I remember watching him go out and wrestle as the wrestling pro there in Atlanta, and you couldn't tell. You couldn't tell that it wasn't <laughs> the real guy. Doug I mean, Gilbert? yeah, Doug Gilbert, he would go out there and I've seen him substitute for Doug Gilbert and go out there and be introduced as Doug Gilbert. And I'll be damned if I watched the match and I would say, gosh, he even look. he wrestles like him. How can he wrestle like him? I mean, he's just a, just a fabulous talent. Uh, Dick and I are going to be friends for a long time. He's going to come and wrestle for me in Knoxville. Uh, he is and he's going to live there for a year and a half. He's going to just take my young talent in Knoxville and do exactly what he's helping me do here as a as a young pro myself. He's going to take these young guys I have in Knoxville, and he's just going to mold them boys. He's going to teach them how to interview. He's got – guys had such respect for Dick Steinborn. He is just a tremendous talent. Uh, I wrestled some with Cyclone Negro. Cyclone Negro is a big dude. He's over. He's really over in in Florida and uh they put me in tag matches with him against the medics against Jack and Jim Dalton uh gosh what an opportunity. I'm just I'm I'm in awe by how I'm being taken care of and who I'm actually wrestling partners with and who's on the other side of the ring that I'm wrestling against uh Dewey Robertson uh Comes a big star, I think, probably in, uh, in Ganya's territory. Uh, he's fairly young, but, but uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm with Dewey some. I wrestle some with Bob Roop. I wrestle with Les Thatcher. I wrestle with Ken Lusk. I wrestle partners with Louis Tillet. Louis Tillet is the booker. He's doing some booking at that point, and he's also, uh, one of the stars in the territory. He's he's a great talent. Louie's a small guy, but a tremendous talent in the ring. Got great heat most of the time. And in Florida, for some reason, he wanted to use himself as a baby face, but he was over, and he did very well. And, and then there's one guy I really want to kind of single out that I work with uh, because he – I had a personal relationship with him starting in the eighth grade when when my father took us to Arizona for the first time. We lived in Tucson, and and Jose Lothario lived in the same house with him, him and his wife. They lived in the same house with us for six or seven months. I mean, I just loved this guy. He was just a fantastic person, treated me so great in the eighth grade. And for me to get in the ring with him as a partner, and he's 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 a big star in Tampa at this point, in 1971. Uh, El Gran Lothario is the man there, and uh, he's the guy that's getting it done uh, every night, and uh, and he takes me under his wing, obviously, and uh, we have several tag matches with the Medics that. I'm just I'm just privileged to be a part of. I, I'm I look back at those matches and say to myself, "Gosh, man, uh, you didn't you didn't have to do anything. I wasn't I I didn't have to be a to, to be the star of that match. I was just lucky to be a part of that match, and I learned so much from all those guys. And Lothario probably meant more to me working with Jose than any of them. Now Jose is a super talented guy. Really, really great, great interviews, as well as a great worker in the ring, uh, and he's also a great trainer. He's going to train Shawn Michaels, and uh, I pick pictures for every one of these episodes, and my picture uh, for this episode uh, is is El Gran Lothario and and Shawn Michaels together. Uh, he's he he not only has a phenomenal career himself, uh, but he. He teaches those young people that are coming along behind him, and some of them turn into great stars like Shawn Michaels does.
2: We will return to Florida in just a moment, but first we want to give you a little bit of a taste of what's coming up on the next Super Studcast, Super Studcast number five.
1: That a boy. Yeah, that's right. We're going to ride farther and faster than the normal ride. Oh, yeah, boy. You're ready. Saddle's on and cinched up tight. Stick that head over here and let me get that bit in your mouth. Now the bridle's on. We have a special ride today, Lightning. It's a super stud cast day. Time to give our fans the very best. And we're going to climb a couple of wrestling mountains and ride into history. Yeehaw!
0: An in-ring wrestling career that spans five decades is unprecedented in modern-day wrestling. The subject of this week's Super Stud Cast has been there and done that. And at almost 80 years of age, still occasionally gets in the ring with the agility of a much younger man. He began as a fireman in his younger years and became one of the most popular athletes in the history of wrestling. A friend of the Tennessee Studs for over 40 years, he's the man that in 1982 started the longest-running family feud in pro wrestling history, stemming from one of the most controversial world heavyweight championship matches of all time. He trained each of his four sons to wrestle, and even form tag teams with them in the 80s and 90s. He's one of the most recognized names and faces in wrestling. When his entrance music starts, the crowd hits their feet, and the strut down the aisle begins. He's a member of the WWE Hall of Fame. Some still call him the Bullet. Super Studcast number five can only be about the one and only... Bob Armstrong.
2: You heard it right there. The next Super Studcast, Bullet Bob Armstrong will be the live guest of the Tennessee Stud. You get 3 total hours in the month of May from the Super Studcast by going to patreon.com/studcast or tnstud.com for only two ninety nine a month. What better deal than that one? I really don't know. But now let's go back to Florida. And you've talked about some of the guys you tagged with, some of the guys you worked with. When did you get your first singles title shot?
1: Well, I'm going to get it. Luckily, I'm going to get it in this time frame. Uh, actually, I get my first singles title shot in January of 1971. That, guess, I've been uh, started in June, so that's probably about seven months in. And I have the opportunity to wrestle Rene Goulet for the Southern Heavyweight Championship. Uh, We wrestle in a small town. It's O'Galley. We wrestle another uh, championship match in Fort Myers in that same month. Uh, Both of these matches are 45-minute time limit, and they are both draws. That is pretty remarkable. For a young guy to be, I guess they had enough confidence in me to say, you know, we think you can do the 45 minutes and have a good match. It's pretty difficult to have a long match, uh, especially you go 45 minutes or above 45 minutes and be able to have the skills and the knowledge and and the leader that can put you where you need to be and build this match over a period of 45 minutes. And as time goes by here, my 45-minute time limit's going to move on up to an hour. And uh, I'm learning a lot in these 45-minute matches because you have to learn how to, to control yourself. Uh, when you're young, you go in the ring and you're excited and you have a tendency not to breathe. Yeah, I find myself sometimes when I'm young, blown up within the first five or 10 minutes of the match because I'm so keyed up and I'm not breathing properly. So when you get into these situations where you've got that 45 minutes and you're looking at an hour sometimes, you know that you can't do that to yourself. It slows everything down for you. And by slowing it down, you start really to get an opportunity to learn how to, how to work, how to work uh, the crowd and how to, how to sell and how to do what it takes to be a star. And so that I'm getting these 45 minute matches and then they throw at me this finish year, uh They say, uh, you're going to go 45 and then Ron, you're going to ask him for five more. And, you know, I was like, well, geez, you know, I'm I'm thinking I'll be lucky to do 45. Now you want me to ask for five more. So I asked for the five more and, and then he beats me in the, in the five minute extra period. So, you know, I always thought I didn't like that, uh, you know, because... Uh, the crowd gets really up when you say, give me five more minutes, five more minutes. And and he's starting to leave the ring and you talk him back to the ring. And he says, yeah, I'll give you five more minutes. And then, you know, you're, I'm at that point saying, boy, I want to win this sucker. I want to get over here. And then he beats you in that five minutes. It, it did. it kind of took a little bit out of me, a little heart out of me. I never really liked that, like that finish, but, uh, But I did like the fact that I was doing those 45 minutes and I was getting that extra time in the ring. Uh, So Rene Goulet's my first shot at a championships, I wrestled him at least three times uh, in the first three months of the year of 1971 for the title. Obviously, I never win the title, but I'm pretty lucky. I look around at all these other young guys that are in there, and I don't see any of them above that first or second match, and they're wrestling on that same card with me, and I'm I'm on the fifth match, and they're on the second match, and so I'm thinking that I'm getting somewhere. I'm 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 beginning to learn, and uh, I'm really enjoying it and loving the business, loving the sport.
2: In terms of working the longer matches, what did you find was the best exercise to build up your stamina? All of a sudden you're going 45 minutes and then five minutes more. The best
1: way to build your stamina is to do those 45s regularly. If you do those long matches regularly, you don't have any problem with stamina pretty quickly. It it took me probably uh, uh, a month to get my body acclimated to those long matches. And once you get that You've got that uh, that lung. You build your lungs pretty quickly. You can really you can really get the long wind, and you and what happens is you learn how to slow down. You learn how to sail. Everything means more. So once you get toward the end of that match. You just don't get up as quickly. Uh, You tend to stay down, and so does your opponent. And you learned that. I learned it from the opponents I had. I was doing these hours and 45 minutes with Rene Goulet, and I'm going to do them with Ronnie Garvin. And and these guys that are good guys, I mean, they know what they're doing in the ring, and they tell you, slow down. Slow down. I mean, toward the end, I'm thinking, let's go, let's go. And they're saying, they're leading me in the right direction. They're teaching me how to have long matches and how to be able to keep those people's attention and to keep them sitting on the edge of their seat for a long period of time.
2: Well, beyond all the success that you're having at this time, early in your career in Florida, in wrestling, I know that there was something that happened around this time in early 71 in your personal life, that was really a big moment for you.
1: Yeah, yeah, it really was. And, uh, you know, I I have my first son. My first son is born. He's born on April 29th, 1971. And, you know, it it figures when you're a wrestler and you're wrestling six, seven days a week, that the chances are that when your child is born, if you're a wrestler, you may not be there. And that's what happens in, in the case of my son, Chad, that's uh, born in and 71 uh i end up resting that night in miami it's a long drive it's it's a four-hour drive one way uh they come to me that night in miami and they tell me you know your wife has gone gone to the hospital and and she's about to have the baby well you know obviously we all as 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 men and 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 husbands and all those things uh you know, you want to be there for that. It's an it's an important event, and and I couldn't make it obviously because I'm I'm too far away, and and so I I have a match and I have to do what I have to do for a living, and oddly enough, this is really a strange strange event in a way because we didn't very often fly from Tampa to Miami, and for some reason that night we flew. Uh, I flew, Jack Briscoe flew. Uh, Bob flew. I can't remember who all quite a few of the babies, uh, flew that night on a, on a commercial flight. And then we were able to leave at 11 o'clock and be on the plane and come back to Miami. Well, so when we fly Tampa at this point has an old airport, like Atlanta's old airport before Hartwell, before they really built the big one there. Now, uh, Uh, Tampa has a really old, it's a dump of an airport. I don't think it had air conditioning in it, to be honest with you. Uh, Gates were, it it was all on one floor. It It was just a piece of crap. And they're building, they start building in 1970 and into 71, a new airport. And oddly enough, that airport opens up the same night that we're flying back from Miami. In fact, when we flew out to Miami, we parked at the old airport. And when we came back home on that flight, the airport opened at midnight and we arrived at 1205, maybe one of the first flights ever into Tampa's airport that they have now. And in my opinion, the Tampa Airport is the best designed, most beautiful airport in the world. And I've been to a lot of airports. Tampa is just a phenomenal facility. And now we go out of that old airport, where it's rinky-dink as it can possibly be, and we fly into the new Tampa Airport. We get off in a remote terminal. We get on that tram that takes us into the main terminal and we get off that main that tram in that main terminal. And we're just like, wow, look at this. This is unbelievable. It just is. So I get, uh, then we have to go down. We have to catch a cab to take us around to the old airport to where we can get our cars. And I end up getting to the hospital about two in the morning, about two Two hours after my son's born, but uh, you know, I have a I have a big day. I have a new son that that, uh, just arrives, and at the same time, I get my first visit to the new airport in Tampa, and uh, it's uh, turns out to be a pretty good evening.
2: Sounds like it. Sounds. I mean, it's pretty amazing that all this happened. The coincidence of everything happening on that same night.
1: Yeah, it's kind of strange, you know, and, I, and and I none of us knew that we were going to be coming back into a new airport. Well, nobody had said, hey, look, uh, you know, you're going out on this one. But when you come back in tonight, you're going to be over there at that new airport on the far sides of the runway over there. Yeah, so it turned out to be a little strange event. But uh, overall, it was great. Um, my son was very healthy. Uh, my wife did well. Uh, I'm I'm living the good life at this point. I'm really enjoying things.
2: Well, we're gonna hear more about that good life next week on the show. But before we wrap things up, Ron, a few listener questions that were sent in this week. This question's from Chris Adams in Panama City. What are your thoughts on the success of continental wrestling versus the success of Memphis wrestling? Oh good
1: question. And I guess I'm fairly qualified to answer it too, having been around Memphis and yes. <laughs> growing up there and uh and seeing what happened after my dad went there in the late fifties and kind of ignited Memphis, uh, Memphis is Memphis is just after my dad went there and, and got them on that channel five and got, uh, and it was smart enough to bring in, uh, uh, the great, one of the greatest commentators of, of all time, Lance Russell, uh, he, and, and then. uh, the, to have the first ever ninety-minute live show—I mean, he, all of that combination of what he did with that television there—is one of the reasons that he exploded the city itself and the and the business there uh, was because he he did the right things with that TV, and it's just and it just went crazy. It Memphis was one of the best wrestling cities of all time, and it never died. It never really never really waned after after nineteen fifty nine or sixty when when dad was there. It never really dropped and 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 did any poor business. Uh so Memphis is strong and, and the Memphis territory is is more than Memphis. It's Louisville, Kentucky. It's uh it's I I never worked a lot. It's a it's Lexington, Kentucky, uh and uh
0: Nashville, oh, yeah. Evansville, Nashville, Indiana.
1: Evansville, yes, Evansville. I mean, they, you know, he's got a great little. They, they, they do Saturday nights in Arkansas. I mean, they're a little bit of here, there, and, and all around everywhere, and they're doing good business everywhere. They keep a good crew there at all times. Uh, they have certain guys there that are staples. I mean, Jerry Lawler is Memphis, and Lawler's there forever. And he has all these programs with tremendous people. Some are great wrestlers, and some of them are dunces and and and, and, uh, and our actors. You know what I mean? So it, he he has a he has a tremendous run in Memphis, and that Memphis territory does very very well uh, compared to Continental. Uh, continental. Uh, is an established. It, it it basically changes names from southeastern wrestling uh, to continental pretty much overnight. Uh, we we stop uh, doing the program in a studio and we start doing it in an 8,000 seat arena that is pretty well full most times. Uh, we've it's replaced uh, uh, Gordon Soley comes in as the commentator. So we're going to see some some things that, that make this happen for Continental that's similar to what Dad did in 59 and 60 with the television program. So we're going to take this television program from Southeastern and we're going to jump it tremendously uh, in quality by the fact that it's now gonna be shot in a big arena, it's gonna be shot with five or six cameras, it's gonna be shot with slow mos and, and the ability to do everything that anybody else in the country can do with their T V and it's gonna that is going to do what Dad's wrestling show did for Memphis, it's going to explode Continentals business as well. And all of a sudden in Birmingham and Montgomery and in and Dothan, Alabama and Mobile and Pensacola, Florida, and on up into the Mississippi and over into Georgia's uh in Tallahassee. I mean, we're going to we're going to have huge success, very similar to Memphis's success, oddly enough. I wouldn't say I couldn't pick one of the two that probably was more successful, I, and actually during this time frame, during the eighties, we did a lot of swapping of talent. Uh, oddly enough, uh, Jerry Jarrett was there in Memphis. We had a great relationship with Jerry, having worked for him before myself and for Rob, and Rob as well. And we would trade. Uh, Bill Dundee would come down and, and work a couple of weeks, and uh, uh, Sid Vicious would come in. Worked as humongous. Uh, he would come back and work. Uh, Said vicious later. I mean, there was a lot of experience. Uh, Austin Idol, we would send to Memphis. Uh, we would send uh, some of our talent out of out of uh, Continental to Memphis as well. So we were kind of exchanging talent, and we were both successful companies. Uh, Memphis was great, very successful, and so was Continental.
2: Did you have any towns that got both TVs?
1: Uh, Probably so. I'm going to think uh, in Mississippi. There were places in Mississippi. We ran in, in uh, Mississippi State, uh, where Mississippi State is. Can't think of the name right now. We ran a couple of towns in the northwestern part, the northeastern part, I'm sorry, of Mississippi. And that television there probably went over close to Memphis. And Memphis's TV came down pretty close to the town that we ran there in northern Mississippi. Uh, So there was a little bit of a crossover, but that was probably the only crossover that we had with them because their business was mostly north toward into Kentucky, and ours was mostly south uh, into, into the Gulf Coast area.
2: Jared, of course, ran Tupelo for many years. You ran Mississippi. Bill Watts is also in Mississippi. Of course, he has Biloxi. Did you have any towns that you overlapped with Bill Watts? Yes, we overlapped Bill
1: Watts uh, in Mobile. Our mobile television overlapped into Biloxi. And uh, his Biloxi TV came into Mobile. Uh, There was a pretty much there was a, a little overlap between New Orleans and Mobile's televisions because they were on a big station in New Orleans. We were on a very big station, a CBS affiliate in Mobile. So there was an overlap. And, and we worked together with Watts. Watts and I worked together quite a bit. Uh, I worked programs with Ernie Ladd, which was a great mix for, for Bill. Now, Ernie and I, same height almost. Ernie's a little bigger guy. But, uh, you know, we had tremendous matches. I would go over and work uh, New Orleans. I would work Biloxi. I would work where there was an overlap. And then he would send me, Ernie, to work in Mobile. Ernie and I, we we sold out. We I wanted to get in the big building in Mobile. There's two buildings side by side there, one of them's the auditorium, the other's Expo Hall. I could not get in the big building when I had Ernie, and we put an additional two thousand seats into Expo Hall and turned away more people outside than we could get in the building. No telling what we could have drawn if we'd have been able to get in the auditorium. But Ernie Ladd was a big star there and all around the country.
2: You got Arn Anderson after he was in Mid-South under his real name as an undercard guy. Did you ever have any fans say, hey, wait a minute, that's that Marty Lundy guy from Mid-South? Never
1: did. I never heard anybody make a remark. No, seriously, never did anybody say, you know, that's Marty Lundy. Uh, I think, you know, Arn's a great story. Arn was a tremendous talent. and, And when he came to us, You know, I wanted to, I said, we need to do something big time with this guy. You know, he's going to, he's going to be a huge star. And, you know, Marty Lundy is not, not going to cut it. And, and we, we had him kind of dealing with Oli. We were doing a lot of talking with Oli and Oli saw some of his stuff. And Oli says, geez, man, that kid is phenomenal. You know, and I think I might've asked Oli, you know, Oli, let's, let's make him one of the Andersons. You know, and Ole was all for it. He you know, we talked and said, you know, let's how about Arn? You know, we even came up with a name. So <laughs> Ole was really, really into Arn and uh gosh, I was too. Arn was a tremendous talent from the very first time I ever saw him in the ring. And but I never had anybody that there wasn't enough overlap there that that people just uh, knew everybody on the most of Mobile fans, oddly enough, because they only got to see us, I think that's where their emphasis was on watching our program uh, more and, and being more into it than his program, than Watts's program, because they knew they were going to see our wrestlers. And they probably knew they weren't going to see Watts' wrestlers. I'm sure most of those fans didn't realize why. They didn't know what that was all about. Uh, but – you know that's that's the way things were back in those days, and uh, and people people were happy with it, and they they sometimes there was overlaps. They saw more than one show, but it didn't happen on a on a regular occasion, and it never seemed to hurt people's business. Uh, our business never never was affected by his program being an overlap with us, nor that Mississippi town that we ran, that uh, we did tremendous business in. Uh, I don't believe it, uh, affected our TV probably didn't affect Jerry much either in Memphis.
2: Ron, let's get one more in before we leave. And I actually, I should say two more Melissa Tillery and Troy, Alabama sent two questions in one who made your robes, the robes that you wore as the Tennessee stud. And also, do you know anything about president Jimmy Carter's mother attending matches in Georgia?
1: Well, that's good. That's a heck of a deal. Great questions there. Uh, The lady that made my robes, this is pretty remarkable, I guess, in a way, in a remarkable story, is Johnny Walker's wife, Olivia. And Johnny Walker's wife, I think, made a lot of Ric Flair's robes. Uh, She made Johnny's robes, obviously. Uh, She was one of the best at at making robes, beautiful robes. Uh, And when I wanted her to make my first robe, I talked to her, I said, you know, she said, I know your deal is you're the Tennessee stud and you know, can, what can, what would you like to have? And I said, you know, Olivia, I don't know. I mean, uh, why don't you play with it and give me some ideas? And she sent me back within two days, a photo of uh, or a diagram of a horse's head with a uh, fire coming out of his nose. And, uh, Tennessee stud across the top of it. It was like, I was like, wow, Jeez <laughs> You know, I mean, I call her up and she says, what do you think? And I said, make it. <laughs> I said, make it in blue, make it in black, make it in, you know, I mean, I. She, it was just, you know, she, it was just beautiful. It was perfect for me, I thought. And, you know, and she made all my robes. Uh, once she made my first robe, she made every robe that I ever had. I never gave anybody else the opportunity because she was so darn good at it, and everything was made perfectly to fit you. I mean, she would come to to down into into Pensacola, and and measure me. She'd measure chest and shoulders and and uh, everything. Uh, the length had to be right. I mean, she was just a she was a consummate professional at making robes. And she did them for just about everybody. Once people found out how good she was, she did them for just about all of them. Uh, The second part of that question about Jimmy Carter's mom. Now, I've heard the stories that that Jimmy Carter's mother was a tremendous wrestling fan. Uh, Obviously, when he was Georgia governor, he lived in Atlanta. I guess that's where the mansion is. The governor's mansion was in Atlanta, obviously. And uh, his mother visited him a lot. Uh, And maybe she stayed in the mansion full time. I don't know how often she was. But when Wrestling 2 became popular, now this is 72, uh, maybe 73, uh, just about the time that Bill Watts is booking there and Watts is going to come to Florida, uh, I'm going to go actually up there to Atlanta and Watts is going to put the title on me, the Georgia championship, and I'm going to go back the next week and put it on wrestling too. And from that time when wrestling 2 wins that Georgia championship from me, he becomes maybe, Hey, you know, I think it probably just about unquestionably the biggest star in the history of Georgia wrestling. And, uh, so his mother, uh, Jimmy Carter's mother is a huge fan. If she's a huge fan, she's going to be a fan of, of Mr. Wrestling 2 because he is the man there. And there's a personal relationship I have heard between Wrestling 2 and Jimmy Carter's mom. Uh, they, they know each other and talk to each other uh, probably just about every time she comes to the matches. I'll guarantee you. Uh, He had her back up on the stage there at the old auditorium in Atlanta. And uh, they had a lot of private time together. And uh, I know that much about it. I don't know much more than that. But I do know that she was a huge fan. I know that she came to a lot of Atlanta matches. Uh, She may have come to small small towns, uh, spot show matches too, and had the same relationship. But she had a very close relationship with Mr. Rising too.
2: I know Jim Barnett, I believe, was at the inauguration. I believe Mr. Wrestling 2 was invited also, but didn't go. And this shows you how different the world is because he would have had to unmask to go to the inauguration so he didn't go. Crazy. Crazy. (laughs) And you know what's crazy?
1: You think about it. Now, I just said I'm wrestling uh, in Florida. Now, this is 1971, and I've just mentioned him as one of the guys that uh, I actually wrestled against. And, uh, you know, he's Johnny Walker. He has no mask on. Uh, He is. He's he's a good worker. He's a great worker. Johnny's a great worker. Uh, But he he doesn't. He's just he just lacks that little something. And all of a sudden, man, you put the mask on him and he's a different person and and his his drawing ability his talent everything about him changes and that's remarkable to me that that can happen for some guys that they cannot have any future and then just uh, put a mask on or make one little tiny change and all of a sudden they're off and running and they're becoming stars
2: well as we begin to wrap things up ron a few notes of course, you can like Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. That is the official page. Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud. There used to be another page. It is now totally full. So we've started a new fan page for the stud. Once again, look for Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud on Facebook. You can follow Ron on Twitter and Instagram at Ron Fuller Welch. You can follow me on Twitter. At Great Brian Last. You can hear me each week on the 605 Super Podcast at 605pod.com or wherever you find your favorite podcast, classic wrestling talk and wrestling humor, the 605 Super Podcast. Of course, you heard the announcement earlier in the show Bullet Bob Armstrong is the next Super Studcast, Super Studcast number five, on the new release day of Tuesday, May 15th. I don't know what we're gonna get. Are we gonna get Ron Fuller and Bob Armstrong? Or are we gonna get the Tennessee stud and the bullet? We really <laughs> don't know. We won't know until the Super Studcast number five. Of course, patreon.com slash studcast or tnstud.com only 2 99 to access all Super Studcasts as well as the rest of the story. But before we wrap things up, Ron, where are we going next week on the studcast?
1: All right. Well we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna meet a very unusual individual next week. Uh we're gonna we're gonna have our first encounter with Ron Wright. We're going to discover the chisel. Uh he, he's going to bring his uh his own little gimmick down to Florida and he's gonna spend a week there in Florida. Uh a lot of fans have not heard much about Ron Wright uh they're gonna start getting a little tease here of Ron Wright. He's gonna disappear and he's gonna come back again in a couple of years down the road. But we're gonna meet Ron Wright and uh we're also gonna talk about going to get back to my dad a little bit and uh and there's a reason for that because dad is is becoming a little bored in Georgia and he's wanting to branch out. He's wanting to make things happen. He's still got that that uh, drive in him to, to do something spectacular. And we're going to start talking about around the world and how my dad is, is his, his whole perspective is changing though. He's, he's wanting, he's looking at the world rather than just the United States. And it's, it's pretty amazing uh, his thought process. And we're going to deal with some of that next week. Uh, I think fans will really be, really be uh amazed at uh, where his head is
2: Ron Fuller studcast is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network for the Tennessee Stud Ron Fuller I'm the great Brian Last the story continues next week
0: thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast the true story continues next week so full Nelson your friends and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.